So first, uh, let's talk about, uh, let's do a review of the kingship. So I'm going to ask you guys to look up these passages um, and, and read them. So would, would somebody be willing to look up Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20? Anyone? Perfect. Andy, I just stared at you until you, until you did it. All right. Uh, and then uh, uh, if somebody can have 1 Samuel 8 ready then, Gary, yeah. Uh, and then somebody else, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Great. All right. So, uh, and then obviously judges up there. So go ahead, Andy, and read uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Sorry, but this original audio segment ha- segment had to be removed. Great, thanks. Okay, so just uh, maybe th- two, three things to notice there. First of all, at the start of that verse, it talks about when you get into the land and you say, we want a king like all the other nations around us. This, that, that little phrase there should, should set off alarm bells in your head uh, because everything, everything in the book of Deuteronomy, everything in the book of Leviticus, everything in the book of Exodus up to this point has been talking about how the Israelites are supposed to be a distinct nation. They are not supposed to be like the nations around them. They're supposed to image what the kingdom of God, what the rule and reign of God is supposed to look like. And so when you see a little phrase like, when we get into the land, we want, we want to be like all the nations around us, already you should say like, uh, maybe this isn't that good. Uh, maybe this is more of a concession than something that is actually positive. Uh, so that's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is uh, you, you all were talking about in your review of kings, the number of wives uh, uh, Solomon has, right? Uh, the, uh, the riches of, Solom- of Solomon, right? Y- you see in this passage, in this Deuteronomy passage, already sort of the seeds of the downfall. In fact, you can kind of go through Solomon's kingdom uh, and see how he breaks nearly every one of the things that he is supposed to do in this Deuteronomy passage as a king. He doesn't. He he does not do them. Uh, so he acquires tons of wives. He gets he gets a lot of wealth. He gets he he forms this close relationship with Egypt. He gets all these horsemen. He gets all this stuff. Uh, and uh, and in the end, he he ends up failing the Lord. Uh, so uh, so that's. That's kind of the, the first thing, uh, first clue that we get about what does the Bible think about the kingship. The second is First Samuel 8. Now, this is the whole chapter, Gary, but, but I might cut you off at a certain point because it might get a little long. But go ahead. You can start reading. Sorry, but this original audio segment had to be removed. Okay. Uh, hold on there, Garrett. So uh, that, that's great. So we see the Lord's kind of response to this. Again, it's, it's sort of a, uh, it's almost making more explicit, explicit the wrongness of the request for a king, right? The people are requesting king because they've, requ- they've rejected the Lord. All right. So uh, the verses 10 through uh, 18 of this is, is going to be Samuel sort of laying out what Deuteronomy has already said and a little bit more explicitly about saying, listen, you're, you're this this king is going to tax you. He's going to enslave you. He's going to take your sons and he's going to set them off to war. He's going to do all of these bad things that you probably will not want. Do you want this? Uh, and then, uh, and then the people, uh, and then the people basically respond this way. So Gary, uh, go ahead and read, let's just say 19 through the end of the chapter, of the chapter, uh, verse 19. Sorry, but this original audio segment had to be removed. Okay, great. Thanks. So, okay. The, the people, despite this warning, they're actually left in this position where they're still saying we, we want this King. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so we have this in these first two passages, we maybe get sort of a more negative picture of picture of the kingship. Right. Uh, in these next two passages I want to talk about, it, it might be a little bit more positive. So, Rick, go ahead with Second uh, Samuel seven twelve through sixteen. This is uh, this is the an account where David is talking to Nathan about potentially building uh, the. Um, 
excuse me, the temple for God. So go ahead, Derek. Sorry, but this, ori- this original audio segment had to be removed. So in this passage, we see that despite this pretty, frankly, negative way in which the kingship is being presented, uh, in Second Samuel, we have the, the affirmation of, of an eternal kingship, that there, there will actually be a throne that is established forever through David, which is, uh, you know, you would assume with God, that, that's, pre- that, that's pretty positive. That's a pretty positive affirmation of an institution like this. And then in Judges 17.6, this is the end of Judges that I was talking about, these, these passages that are uh, so sort of awful. There's this refrain that happens throughout these passages. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, and, and so uh, what we see here is that Judges has a, has a pretty positive picture of the kings, right? They, they restrain evil. They actually force people to do, in some sense, what God has told them to do. Uh, and so what do we do with this? We're going to be talking throughout the book of Kings about the kingship. So how does, how does the Bible feel about the kingship? think about this. This is present a lot of times throughout Kings and, and even kind of throughout almost all of the, all of the Old Testament, right? Um, if you think about, uh, we, we were talking earlier about the, uh, how there's, there's not necessarily a strong relationship between a good king first followed by a bad king, right? There's not like good, not like good king, good king, and then slowly it turns into sort of a bad king. It's like good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Uh, and, uh, and in the book of Kings, one of the other things that's interesting is that there's not necessarily a direct relationship between obedience and blessing, right? So in some cases there is, in the case of Solomon, for example, when Solomon is doing really well, really well, when he's honoring the Lord, everything is going well for him and the kingdom reaches the heights of its power, right? But, uh, and, and then when he rejects the Lord, the, the kingdom is taken away from him. There's all of these enemies that come about and, uh, and he kind of ends in uh, sort of okay status. But you also have kings like like Josiah is a great one. Josiah comes at the end of the southern kingdom. He is he is the best king uh, that we get in in all the book of Kings. He gets the absolute benediction that he does everything right. And Josiah is killed in battle. Right? He he doesn't he doesn't get to see his kingdom actually saved from Babylon. Uh, you also you also have people like I'm going to be referencing a number of times Jeroboam the second. Right? Jeroboam the second is this weird little king. He doesn't get a lot of play in. Uh, in Second Kings, uh, but uh, he's a king in the Northern Kingdom. He's a bad king. But during the reign of Jeroboam II, the nation of Israel is at its most prosperous time. They expand. They they take land take land from from Syria. They're rich. Uh, there there's all of this sort of uh, what you call kind of blessing coming out of this. And so there's there's this tension in the Book of Kings about how do we understand the the relationship between obedience and blessing, disobedience and curses. There, there, there's all of these there's all these sort of all these sort of ambivalent tensions. Uh, and as I said, I think there, there are other places that you can see this in the, in the Old Testament. There's, there's tension that we see in these, in these themes that run throughout the Old Testament of, say, uh, the Israelites needing God's presence, right? They need God's presence to live. When, when, God, when God is speaking, speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai after the Israelites have disobeyed God and worshiped the golden calf, God says, I'm done with them. I'm going to make you a nation. And Moses says, if you leave us, like just just let us die here because we're done. We need your presence. But at the same time, how can the presence of God be with these sinful people? Right? There's all of these all of these tensions that we're seeing. There's all of these difficulties, these ambivalences that we're seeing throughout these books. Uh, and uh, you can go to the next slide, Matt. 
And I think fundamentally these are tensions between, uh, in the Old Testament, what we see is grace and judgment. Um, I, I think y you, can, you can kind of summarize in some way the message of the Old Testament and, and the resolution of the New Testament as the resolution of this tension between grace and judgment. How is God going to respond to sin, sin when he also has this covenant that he has made with God's people that he is never going to leave them? How do, how do you reconcile those two things? Uh, and I think one of, the, one of the dangers that we can have when we're reading the book of Kings is to overemphasize one side or another as we're reading this, to try to resolve this tension in our minds, to make, minds, to make it all about judgment or all about grace. So uh, I'll say the, the, the more dangerous reading of the two and the, probably the more popular in our culture is certainly the all about judgment reading. So if you read through the book of First and Second Kings, you will find pretty quickly that people are doing a lot of bad things and God is responding in some pretty angry, angry ways. Uh, so uh, Elijah, when after, after the whole battle on Mount Carmel with the prophets, and he comes and complains to God about, just kill me, I'm done, no, nobody's listening to me. Uh, God, in, in, his, uh, in his sending out of Elijah again, he, uh, he says, you're going to anoint Jehu, who's going to be this king that's going to destroy all of Ahab's house. And he says, anybody that's not killed by Jehu will be killed by Haziel, who is this uh, Syrian king that Elijah is going to anoint. And he says, anybody who's not king killed by Haziel will be killed by Elisha, who's going to be your successor. And so you see that and you're like, wow, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of dark, God. That's, 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 that's pretty brutal. Uh, and so it's easy to read those sorts of passages and say, okay, this is, this is a God that is a God of judgment. He's like the sort of angry God of the Old Testament. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's, that's far, far too simplistic of a reading uh, of, of the book of First and Second Kings. Uh, I, I won't necessarily have us, have us turn here, but these passages, the first one actually comes from an account uh, of Ahab. And this, this was one of those passages that I found when I was reading through these books years ago and I was writing a study on it. It was just shocking. Ahab is, as you will find, he is the worst. He is the worst king in the northern kingdom. Really, he's probably the worst, the worst king in the book of First and Second Kings. The book of First and Second Kings goes into great detail about his sin. Uh, and, uh, and over and over, Elijah calls Ahab to the carpet and says, repent, 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 and he never does it. Except in this one time, at basically the end of his life, in 1 Kings 22, 25 through, 5 through 29, Elijah comes to him and says, I have a message from the Lord, you're done. Your whole household is going to be destroyed, you're going to be killed, everything's going to be gone. And Ahab actually repents. He, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He tears his clothes. And the crazy part about this, I mean, if, if I were God, I, I would be like, like, okay, buddy, too little, too late. You know, like you had a lot of chances before this time to come back and actually do this whole sackcloth and ashes thing. I'm, I'm kind of done with you. But God actually speaks to Elijah and says, look, Look at how Ahab repented. I'm actually going to relent from my anger, and this this disaster is not going to come not going to come on him in his life. Like that's crazy. That, that that is that is not the God of judgment that I would be expecting. Uh, the other one. This is a this is a much shorter passage. Uh, it comes earlier in First Kings. Um, after the split of the kingdom between the northern and the southern kingdom, Rehoboam uh, is the first king, but then of the southern kingdom, but then Abijam is the second king of the southern kingdom. 
have to get these names right. Uh, and uh, and Abijam and Rehoboam are both bad kings, right? They're, they they don't follow the Lord. They they worship idols. All these bad things. But in this in this passage, it talks about how God was still merciful to Abijam because of his covenant to David, because of the fact that he was he, he God made this promise to David that there would be a person on his throne forever. And so we we have this. It's far too simplistic of a reading of First and Second Kings to say God is this awful God of judgment. There's way too much grace in the book of First and Second. The second error, and, and I said this is much less severe than the first error. I, I hesitate even to call it an error, uh, but I, I think it's to sort of look at the book of First and Second Kings, and really, in some sense, the whole Old Testament, and just. Um, just see these problems that people are having and say like, okay, yes, but, 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 but Jesus solves all these problems in the New Testament. That's true. And I think reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ is a, is a good thing. We, we, need to be, we need to be viewing Christ as the center of scripture. But I, I've seen ways in which Christians can be uh, sort, of, sort of flippant in reading books like First and Second Kings and not, act, and not actually really engaging with the problems uh, that the people are having. I, when I was trying to think of an example, I, it made me think of if you're doing a math problem, right, especially a high-level math problem, when you get older, your professors care less and less about the answer that you get. Obviously, they want you to get the right answer, but they want you to show your work, right? They want to see how, how you actually got that right answer instead of just saying, like, yes, that's the right answer. And so I, I think if we, if we read the book of First and Second Kings as saying, that's a lot of problems that other people have had. Thank goodness that we have, that we have Jesus Christ and he solves all these problems. It's too simplistic of a reading. It's true that Christ does solve these issues, but how? But how? Show your work. Think about it. You have to engage with the problems that these people are having because, frankly, they're not all that different from the problems that we still have. Um, now, Christ is the solution, but unless we actually see the ways in which Christ is a better solution than what they had then, uh, we're going to look at Christ and the cross as something that's a very, it's a very simplistic event that solves simplistic problems in our lives that doesn't actually deal with the real things that are happening with us. Um, so that, that's kind of a, that's kind of the twin dangers. So, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, I forgot about this, but I love this quote. So Peter Lightheart, he, he wrote a commentary on first and second Kings. Uh, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, and, uh, and he, he's talking about in this quote, uh, the ways in which, uh, the, the Israelite nation in First and Second Kings just just how how destabilized they are over the course of over the course of this book, uh, and uh, and so he he writes this. He says, "Wisdom cannot save Israel from division." So what he means by that is he's saying King Solomon. King Solomon is the greatest king. He has all of this wisdom, but at the end of his life, the the nation ends up divided. It ends up splitting down the middle. Wisdom can't save Israel from division. Torah can't save Judah from destruction. So Josiah. Josiah is the king that finds the Torah. He finds the law. He brings about all these reforms. Everything is going to be fine, but the nation of Judah is still exiled. And the last refuge of hope, the temple, is torn apart and burned by a Babylonian king. The presence of God, the temple is the place where God's presence is actually there, where all of the Israelite worship and practices is supposed to be happening. That is destroyed. Um, All that made Israel Israel, king and priest, Torah and temple, is destroyed. 
destroyed. And as a prophetic narrative, First and Second Kings makes it clear makes it clear that there is no salvation for Israel from within Israel. Having broken covenant, it faces the curse of the covenant. In the day you eat, and this is from Genesis, in the day you eat, you will be driven from the garden. Dying, you shall die. And I, I think when we when when we look at the the nation of Israel and the story of kings this way, it's a much, a much much more impactful way of reading it than just saying, well, like yeah, okay, a lot of things bad things happen, they end up in exile, but you know, God saves them. If you think about the way in which this, this, this narrative would be totally destabilizing for them, everything that they think they know about what it means to be Jewish, about what it means to actually like be in relationship with God, with God, it, it is really destroyed, right? And I, I think for, for us as Christians, th- this can happen to us as well, right? All of us enter into our Christian walk with a series of expectations about what that is going to look like, what it's going to cost, and, uh, and what it means to actually follow after God. But life and, and the Holy Spirit and the Lord, Lord have a way of changing those expectations pretty radically. Uh, I, oftentimes when I'm thinking about this, I think about the Apostle Paul, who is undoubtedly the greatest evangelist in world history, right? And he is reaching out to all of these Gentiles. And but when we're when we're reading most of the letters of Paul, most most of those letters were written while Paul was in prison, right? And it would be easy to imagine if you were Paul to be sitting there thinking, "I'm supposed to be reaching out to these Gentiles for the Lord. I'm the most effective evangelist that the world has ever seen. I'm supposed to be out there ministering to these people. I'm doing this for God, God, but I'm stuck here in this prison. Like, what is this?" The expectations for Paul would have to be radically shifted for him to be able to actually have the opportunity to say, I'm going to be still be faithful here in prison and write these letters and trust that actually these letters will minister to millions and millions and millions of people instead of, ju- instead of just the people that Paul could have ministered to in his lifetime. Uh, but that would be a hard place to get to, right? And, and a lot of times we have these sorts of destabilizing events in our own lives where we think, I'm following after God, I'm doing this thing for him, and he's not letting me do it. What does that mean? The Israelites in First and Second Kings are having the same problem. And so we, we, need, we need to understand that problem if we're going to... So, uh, moving along, how should we read then Kings? Uh, so, similar to how we've been reading Samuel, Kings is, is a theological history. Uh, so, what do I mean by that? Typically, when we think about history today, uh, we think about, there's a cliche that, right, history is written by the winners, right? And so, uh, we, we, we tend to look at uh, history through a lens of who is winning, who is, has the most political power, who has the most economic power, right? And we look through those lenses because, frankly, that's the lenses that we use to analyze our own lives today. Most of the news, if you read it, you can distill it down to what is happening in Washington, what is happening in New York and the financial financial centers of the world, right? Who has the most economic power? Who has the most political power? Um, this is going to be a very different history than, uh, than that kind of history. Uh, the history in First and Second thing, Kings is going to be, uh, it's sort of a theological history of, of the losers, right? Of the people who actually get conquered. And it's not, not going to be looking at history through an economic or, or really in some sense, political lens.
lens. The political lens will be there a little bit. But when you look at a king like I, I talked about earlier, Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II reigns for 41 years. He reigns in, in power and, and privilege. He's, if you were writing a history of the Northern Kingdom, you would write a lot about Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II. But I think, I think it's literally five verses in Second Kings that this guy gets. Uh, he gets so little time. Uh, and this is because the lens by which First and Second Kings is reading history is not so concerned about what is happening uh, in terms of the economics of, of the northern and southern kingdom. It's not so concerned about what is happening in the political intrigue and the palace palace intrigue. It's more concerned about, are you actually being faithful to the covenant that you have been called to be faithful to? Uh, that's, that's how it's going to be reading this history. Um, and so... Uh, how does it, how does it tell this story then? So there, there's a couple ways in which Kings tells this this sort of theological history. So you can go to the next slide, Matt. Um, so it, it tells this story as a story of of division. Okay. So uh, so when you uh, when you get this very very early on in the book, you guys haven't gotten there yet. But uh, after Solomon comes Rehoboam, and Rehoboam results in the division of the northern and the southern kingdom. And so Israel at this point is divided. And when you think about this, this is actually this is actually I talk about destabilizing events. This would be really destabilizing, right? Up to this point, you've all been together through thick and thin. There's 12 tribes. You're 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 all all under kind of one roof. And now suddenly there's two different nations that God is in some kind of relationship with. But how does that relationship play out when they're when they're separate, separate, right? So you see this pretty early on, the, the tensions here. Uh, Jeroboam, uh, who's the first king in the northern kingdom, uh, one of the things that he decides to do, and, and you can kind of understand this politically, is that he decides to set up these worship places in, in the northern kingdom instead of having the people go down to Jerusalem. Because Jeroboam thinks, thinks, well, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, and if all of my people have to worship God in the southern kingdom, they'll start going down to Jerusalem, and then they'll be like, hey, this Jeroboam guy is kind of a bum. Why don't we, why don't we get Rehoboam back up here? We like him, and we'll kick out Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam says, like, well, maybe the people will turn against me. So what should I do? Well, I'll build some high places, some places where people can worship can worship here in the northern kingdom, right? And this is, this is a real tension, because now these are two separate nations. They were supposed to be one. There was supposed to be one center of worship, but now now, what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Uh, there, there's going to be a lot of tensions around division uh, that, that we'll see in, in Kings. Uh, Kings also tells, a story, also tells a story of idolatry. I almost don't want to go too far into this because there's so much idolatry in Kings that it's, it's like it sort of smacks you in the face over and over. Uh, I would say that, that maybe the, the main question, right, is how will God and the people respond to the frankly rampant idolatry in the northern and then and then the southern kingdoms. Uh, and, uh, and basically, is God going to actually, this is the grace and judgment tension, is God going to keep his covenant when the people just continually go off and worship all these other gods? Uh, so he's going to talk uh, it, it tells uh, it tells a story of promise. So uh, this 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 story of First and Second Kings it ends with not just the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple and the Babylonian exile, but it ends with uh, a story about uh, I, I believe it's Jehoiakim uh, in uh, in Babylon, who's a descendant of David of the David of the Southern Kingdom, and it talks about how even though he was imprisoned, he's brought back in to uh, sit with the with the king of Babylon and eat with him. And so there's there's some little 
little like kind of glimmer of hope at the end. But the question that the book of First uh, and Second Kings is trying to answer is basically, is God done with us after the destruction, destruction of the temple, after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the exile of the northern and southern kingdom? Are we finished? Is this covenant done? And are we through? Uh, and so uh, the book is going to answer lightly, no, God's not done with us, but it's going to be a pretty dark place. Uh, so it tells the story of promise. It tells the story of political history, but one, one directed by God. So uh, this is, it'll have, First and Second Kings will have a lot of political events in there. It'll have a lot of stories of political happenings, but even those will be directed by God. So uh, if you read at the, uh, at the split of the kingdoms between the northern and the southern kingdom, uh, there's a point where Rehoboam, who's the king in the south, he wants to go and to go and attack the northern kingdom because they've just, it's sort of like the south seceding from the north, right, in the civil war, right? You, you say like, well, this can't happen. We've, we've got to get them back. Uh, and, uh, and a word of the Lord comes to Rehoboam and says, no, don't do this because this was actually my doing. This was my judgment against Solomon. And so don't go and attack your brothers. Don't go and just go and destroy this, this nation. Uh, and, uh, and so I, we see throughout this book that there's 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 this uh, direction by God of these political events that that even though we could explain these political events in different ways, I mean the splitting of the kingdom is basically just Rehoboam being a terrible politician in some sense. You could sense, you could say he just he just tells people that I'm going to enslave you instead of I'm going to be gentle to you. Uh, but really, what we see through First and Second Kings is that the splitting of the kingdom is a result of God. Uh, and so in this sense, that's that's why it's a theological history. Uh, and finally, it's a story of reform and failure. And so I, I won't talk a little bit more. Uh, I won't talk much about this, but this is, but this is, this is what Bob was talking about at the beginning. It's sort of a spiral, right? We, we, get, we get little glimpses of reform, but it's never enough. Uh, we get good kings, but they never really do quite enough. Uh, and, and in the end, you, you get this, this sort of ultimate failure. Uh, so so that's, that's, what, that's what first and second kings will, will be like. That's the, the theological history. Okay, yeah. So here are, as you guys are reading through, these are just some basic challenges that I have found as I'm reading First and Second Kings. So uh, I'll go through these four and then I'll go through them individually. So all those kings, how do I not zone out? So there's 40 kings. Uh, in First and Second Kings, some of them get a lot of a lot of airtime in the in the book. Some of them get like four sentences, and uh, and all of them have not all of them. A lot of them have super confusing names. Like there's Jeroboam one, Jeroboam two. There's Rehoboam, who's the king in the southern kingdom, while Jeroboam is the king in the north, which is confusing in and of itself. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of potential potential for you just to kind of like zone out. So how do how do we avoid that? We'll talk about that. Uh, the high places. What is this? Now, this was this was one of those things that I really nerded out on uh, because uh, the high places, as you read in First and Second Kings, they show up all over the place all the time. When we're talking about is this a good king or a bad king, it talks about what do they do with the high the high places, right? And so we'll we'll talk a little bit about like what is this? Why 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 did they exist? How do we understand those? Uh, we'll talk about the problem of geography. So Kings mentions a lot of different places in the northern and southern kingdom what are the important ones that we should actually know and uh and what can we what can we kind of zone out from for the rest of it uh and then the last one is the foreign nations uh how do i keep track of them do i need to keep track of them uh we'll, we'll talk i'll talk about kind of the big guns that are helpful to know and everything else you can just sort of you don't have to worry about too much all right so let's go to all those kings so 
Uh, this is all those kings, uh, and uh, and you can see I, I think yeah I think that is that is forty. Uh, so twenty in the north, twenty in the south. Uh, the it might be hard to see from the back, but basically the 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 gray is uh, like the light gray is sort of like it's a mixture of a good and a bad king. Bad king. They're they're okay. The uh, the really kind of bold, almost black are good kings, and the white like no background is is basically bad. So you can see there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bad there, <laughs> all right? Yeah, I I actually and you can yeah I mean they they put it Jehu as a mixture you could definitely argue that he's bad too, uh so so uh, uh so what do we do with all these kings? So kings do usually does apply to some degree the importance of the king uh to the amount of text that they give you. So if it's a really short kingdom that they're talking about, for example, there'll be a time in First Kings where basically for like, I don't know, four kings in a row or something or something like that, just one king is being killed by somebody else who then becomes king, who then kills somebody else who then becomes king. And it's just the series of basically chaotic coup d'etats that happen over and over and over again. Uh, you don't need to pay too much attention to that. Really, I would say just get the idea that the Northern Kingdom is in really, in really bad shape, right? Politically, it is disintegrating at this point. Uh, there, there's, there's very little actual like continuity between, between kingships. Uh, but there are, uh, there are maybe a few kings that, that, that you should pay more attention to. And usually, like I said, usually the text spends more time with them. Um, uh, but uh, but I, I will say to the degree that you pay attention to these kings is to the degree that you'll actually understand the rest of the Old Testament as you read it. So eventually we're going to get into the prophets, uh, the, the major and the minor prophets. And just about all of those prophets are happening in the time of these kings. Uh, and so for, ex for example, in Second Kings, you'll, you'll see an appearance from Isaiah uh, when, when he's dealing with Hezekiah. And you'll be like, oh, Isaiah, I know that guy. Uh, and uh, you'll even see a reference to Jonah, um, which it's a debate about whether or not that's the Jonah of the, the minor prophets. But, uh, but you'll, you'll see kind of a few of these characters in there. In there. Uh, and it's good to actually know the setting and kind of generally what the king was like if you're reading the prophets, because then you get a much better understanding of why are they saying all these things that they're saying? Why are they condemning these guys? Why are they encouraging these guys? How, how do we understand the situation? So to the degree that you can pay attention, uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is pretty good. Uh, for example, uh, I've been using, I've been like beating Jeroboam the second to death, but um, I'll, I'll beat him one more time. So uh, in the uh, in the prophet uh, in the book of Amos, right? The book of Amos is uh, is a is a minor prophet that is based in the in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam the uh, second. And so Amos, so Amos is all about condemning this uh, this culture of of wealth and um, uh, flashiness and exploitation that has existed during the reign of Jeroboam the uh, second. And unless you know that Jeroboam II's reign is like pretty awesome, that there's a lot of money and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of territory that's being conquered, Amos doesn't make that make that much sense. Uh, but once you know that, Amos starts to make a lot more sense. So to the degree that you kind of can remember, it's it's good. But uh, I I would say focus on the kings that First and Second Kings focuses on the most, and and you'll probably be pretty good. Uh, great question, because right. I think it's because they, they, they were just saying from basically from the divided kingdom. So since Solomon is the last king of the United Kingdom, they didn't include him in, in this list. But you're right. That would be, I guess that'd be 41 uh, kings. Maybe you could say 42 because David's still kind of king at the start of first kings. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's that's.
Okay, so the high places. Uh, what what were these? So, uh, as I said before, um, back when Jeroboam right starts the Northern Kingdom, he's the first king of of the Northern Kingdom, and he says, "I don't want my people to go down to Jerusalem. I don't want them to worship God down there because they're going to turn against me. So what I'll do is I'll create these these places of worship. One in Dan in the north, so it's like it's like the furthest north that you can get, and one in Bethel in the south. So it's like kind of almost as far south as you can get in the Northern Kingdom. So you can imagine just about everybody in the Northern Kingdom is close enough to one of these high places that they can get there pretty reasonably, right? That's, that's kind of his goal. Uh, and the high places were these places that were, uh, well, they're high, right? Because you, you get that in the name. But the reason why they're high is, is for the same reason that, I don't know, we build really big skyscrapers and things like that. It's because when you, when you look up and see, they're the things that you're reminded of, right? So uh, if, you're, if you're just operating around and you're, you're a farmer and you're working your ground and you turn around, you kind of look up to the mountain behind you, right? And you and you see all of these uh, these places of worship. You see these these idols. You see all of these temples. And you're reminded, like, oh, right, okay, this this god, these gods are are omnipresent, right? They are they are worthy of my esteem. They are worthy of my valuing. And so uh, the, these high places were places in which you're supposed to kind of look and say, like, ah, this is what we value. This is what we remember. This is what we can see all the time and keep at the front of our minds. Uh, and so. So that that's kind of what they were. Um, so yeah, in the Northern Kingdom, they're they're done with this. Sometimes the high places, well, all the time, the high places are sites of idolatry. Sometimes they involve worship of uh, of pl- people like Asherah and Baal. Those are the two big kind of uh, local idols, Canaanite idols. But sometimes they actually involve the worship of of Yahweh, just the really improper worship of Yahweh, right? So Jeroboam sets up these golden calves, and if you remember going back to Exodus and the whole incident with the golden calf, uh, he, he sets those up as places of worship. And the reason why he does that is not because there's this new Canaanite god that they're worshiping, the golden calf. It's because he's kind of trying to worship Yahweh, but he's doing it in, in a way that has already been just rankly condemned by God. Uh, and so it's, it's an utter failure of Jeroboam to actually worship God as he has been called to worship. Uh, and so, uh, so at times, like, I, I won't I won't read that reference, but there's a um, King Asa is a is a king in the southern kingdom, and he's he removes all the idol worship in the southern kingdom. But it says, but he says, but the high places remained. And you would say, like, well, what's the point of the high places if you removed all the idols? And the reason is, is because the high places were still where people would worship Yahweh, just not appropriately. Uh, and so universally, these things are bad. Okay, uh, so that's high places. Geography. Oh, I hope you can see this. This is this did not turn out maybe the way I wanted it to. Uh, so okay, let me um, let me just walk over here. Uh, there's a lot of places on this map that you probably don't need to know, honestly. Uh, he, here are the main places that I would say uh, you, uh, you want to be aware of. First of all, Jerusalem. That's a big one. Uh, uh, know that. Uh, a lot of stuff happens there. Uh, they don't highlight this, but uh, Samaria right here, this this becomes the capital of the Northern Kingdom. It doesn't start out that way, uh, but it does become the capital. Uh, and this is what
was going to be destroyed by the, by the Assyrians when they take the northern kingdom into exile. So it's good to know kind of where that is in relation to, to other stuff. Uh, you can see, oh, they give you little notes here, right? So um, yeah, Tirzah serves as the capital of the northern kingdom. Later, Samaria would become the capital. Uh, so this is, this is in Dan. That's where one of the sites, sites that, uh, that Jeroboam sets up these, these high places. And then, so one other thing to remember is that north of here, you see Aram at the top there. Really, uh, that, that's, that's true. But a little bit further north is Syria. And Syria is going to be a, a big, big player uh, in, in the book of first and, first and Second Kings. In fact, actually, Matt, if you can go to the next slide. Uh, I'll just I'll just talk about foreign rulers now. Uh, there's a lot of foreign rulers in First and Second Kings. Here are the ones that are maybe the most important to understand. Uh, there's Syria, Assyria. Don't be confused by that. And Babylon. All right. So Syria is the nation that's sort of just north of the Northern Kingdom, and they have all these rulers that are constantly messing messing with uh, with the Northern Kingdom. So uh, Ben Hadad the first, um, which might just be Syrian for like king. It's like may maybe a title, maybe a name. We're not really sure. Uh, but uh, Ben Hadad the first, he's a guy who fights a ton with Ahab. He fights a lot with a lot of the northern kings. He puts a ton of pressure on the northern on the northern kings. In fact, at one point he sieges Samaria. He doesn't he doesn't win, but uh, uh, Ahab manages to kind of buy him off. But uh, but he's he's doing pretty well against the northern kingdom. Then there's this guy Hazel. Hazel. I actually don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, I'd have to look at the Hebrew. But uh, Hazel. Uh, he, uh, he's sort of like the big gun of Syria. So Syria actually becomes under him like a, like a regional power, uh, almost like an Assyria or a Babylon. They're kind of the big guys in the neighborhood. And uh, there, there's actually this super interesting account in, uh, in First and Second Kings where Elijah is called to, called to anoint Hazel. And he has this, he tells Hazel that, that he's going he's gonna to kill Ben-Hadad and become king of Syria. And Elijah just starts weeping. And Hazel says, like, why are you weeping? And, and Isaiah says, because I, I can see what you're going to do to the northern kingdom. Uh, and so it's, yeah, uh, it's a pretty intense moment. And it's true. And it's true. Hazel is going to basically, uh, he's going to establish incredible Syrian dominance over the northern kingdom all during his rule. The, the, the northern kingdom is going to really, really struggle under him. But then by the time of Ben-Hadad II, all right, so there's two Ben-Hadads and Hazael. Uh, Ben-Hadad II is kind, of, is kind of the end of Syria. And things are going well for the northern kingdom under Ben-Hadad II because Assyria, who's kind of the next big kingdom that's coming in, they're attacking him. And so Ben-Hadad is distracted completely by Assyria. And this is when the northern kingdom sort of has this revival, right? So they, they, con they conquer a bunch of land. They get a bunch of stuff. They're feeling pretty good. And they actually make a few stupid, uh, uh, a few stupid alliances trying to say, like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to knock out Syria. Meanwhile, Assyria is, is going to come in and, and kind of wipe them out. So uh, the big three, Syria, Assyria, Babylon. So Syria's first, is first, and then Assyria comes in, destroys Syria, and then also destroys the northern kingdom. After Assyria, then comes Babylon. Babylon is sort of the, the big, the final show, uh, you could say, uh, where they take over the Assyrians, and then they come and siege Jerusalem, destroy Jerusalem, take everybody into, ex into exile. 
So really, if you can remember just those three people, Ben Haddad, Hazel, and Ben Haddad II, and three nations, Syria, Assyria, and Babylon, you, you don't really need to know anything else. You can, you can, everybody else you can just kind of ignore because it's, it's, it gets really obscure at that point. Uh, so, yes. Uh, Um, okay, so what do we learn from kings? And this is, this is sort of jumping back, uh, and I'll, I'll finish with this, jumping back to what we were talking about uh, when we were thinking about understanding the struggle of the people uh, in, uh, and, and how that kind of relates to us. Peter Lightheart, I think, does a great job of summarizing kind of the message of kings for Christians. Because Peter, Light, Peter Lightheart calls the, the, the first and second kings gospel. And here's, here's why we understand the gospel. So you can go to the next slide. So uh, this, is, this is Peter Lightheart in this, uh, again, in this commentary. Uh, and so even the critique of wisdom and Torah and temple, right, is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel. Okay, so remember he was talking about how wisdom doesn't work for the Israelites. Temple doesn't work for the Israelites. Priest doesn't work for the Israelites. All these things that they think will save them don't work for the Israelites. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, what Paul sees in the history of Israel is already obvious to the deeply Pauline author of First and Second Kings. Wisdom cannot preserve the Davidic dynasty, nor can Torah, nor can temple. But what wisdom, wisdom and the law and the temple cannot do, God has done in fulfillment of all of his promises from Romans 8, 1 through 4. In the end, David lives only through his death, and David's kingdom is preserved only on the far side of the grave of exile. So you can go to the next slide. Uh, and while it demonstrates that royal wisdom fails, the book hints that Israel needs and will get a king who will not only possess but is wisdom. When it shows that perfect Torah obedience cannot undo centuries of flagrant unfaithfulness, like in the case of Josiah, it proclaims the promise of an incarnate Torah whose spirit will write the law on, ta on tablets of human hearts. When we see the temple reduced to smoldering ruins, we are encouraged to hope for a living temple, a temple in flesh who gathers in Israel that is itself a living a living temple. I don't know why I missed that last word. Anyway, uh, the point is, is that Kings is a, is, is a story of resurrection. It's a story of death, of death, and you need death for resurrection. But in the end, it involves, it, it ends up being a story of resurrection, of God bringing the people back, cleansed from idolatry. After the Kings and after the return from the exile, the, the Israelites never actually struggle with this kind of idolatry that they do later, uh, that they have in, this, in these books. Uh, and so it's, it's a process, process of resurrection that is happening. But it still does leave a little bit left. It still does leave us with a little bit of a, a desire for more. Uh, and that's what we see in the coming of Christ. And that's how we should read the book of First and Second Kings. That's how we should read the message of the book of First and Second Kings. Uh, it's a gospel message. Uh, it's a message of death and resurrection.